This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Professor Peter Kornitsky, Emeritus Professor of Japanese Studies at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Kornitsky's most recent publication is Languages, Scripts, and Chinese Texts in East Asia, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Professor Kornitsky, thank you for talking with me today. I'm very happy to be here. Um, it's a novel experience for me to be interviewed on a podcast, but it's the first time for everything. <laughs> well, I'm glad uh, to be talking to you. Recently, you've been working on languages and scripts, and previous publication was a history of the book. And So when thinking about the Meiji Restoration, particularly from the perspective of literature, orthography, scripts, around East Asia, what do we see? Oh, the Meiji Restoration is a elephant in the room that I've always tried to avoid and pretend <laughs> I don't see. Okay. And this really starts with uh, when I began with my doctoral work, Tristan. I was um, looking at that time at, uh, at Meiji literature, and uh, the more I read um, about Meiji literature, the more I found I didn't like. Uh, uh, what I didn't like was the fact that histories of modern Japanese literature started in year zero, i.e. 1868. Mm-hmm. Um, and histories of pre-modern literature stopped in that same year zero. And literature isn't, unfortunately, an animal that follows uh, the political dictates of chronology. So I felt very unsatisfied by this uh, kind of consensus, which still to some extent exists. After all, big series of Japanese publications define Koten as up to major restoration, and the modern Kindai starts then. So... I didn't like that. It, it seemed to me, particularly in this field field of literature, to be really unrealistic. Um, and so I was a bit perverse in framing my doctoral topic um, as one which focused on the early Meiji period, particularly a writer called Ozaki Koyo, who lived from 1867 to 1903, and, and looking at his works in the light of what came before, um, trying to look at, at continuities. Um, so that involved... For example, finding out what he read, uh, finding out the kind of things he liked, and then seeing what kind of reflection of that I could see in his works. But at the same time, I wasn't completely blind to the fact that there were some new developments in his work as well. So I was trying to get a more balanced view um, of the long 19th century in literary terms by ignoring the major restoration, which is the subject of these podcasts. So that's not a very good start. (laughs) So what kind of continuities do we see then? The continuities uh, start off with uh, reading tastes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there are some really good pieces of evidence because in 1890, one of the major magazines of the uh, Meiji period, Kokumi no Tomo, The Nation's Friend, decided to do a survey of um, the reading tastes and likes of uh, all the leading figures of the day. As far as I can remember, about 100 responded to this. Um, And over several issues of the magazine, uh, we had the details of their likes and dislikes, including writers, but also politicians. A lot of people we think of being really committed to the modern in the Meiji period. And what do you know? Hardly any of them were reading what we are told are the leading works of Meiji fiction. Hardly any. What they're all interested in is either... Uh, sinological classics. Of course, they may just be doing this for show, but that's what they put down. Or um, the literary bestsellers of the earlier part of the 19th century in Japan. So, you know, that made me think. 
um, that there is something pretty concrete you can get hold of in the way of evidence. And I tried to back that up by, for example, looking at the reprinting history of those same classics of the early 19th century. Works like the historical novels of Bakin, for example, or the romantic novels of Tamenanga Shunsui. And then I found that they were reprinted incredible number of times in the Meiji period. And it seemed to me that's very unlikely to happen if there aren't a lot of people clamouring to read them. But then you compare that again with the classics of modern literature and you find they're issued once, twice, and that's it. So you know, they're not actually attracting as many readers mm -hmm. as the previous generation of writers. So that was one bit of of pretty concrete evidence that I found mm -hmm. that showed a continuity of literary taste that took some time to shift. In that same light, I, I was always fascinated in thinking about the fact that Okuma Shigenobu mm -hmm. called his own house the Tsukiji Ryozanpaku, mm -hmm. and with this reference <laughs> yeah. to this you know, great Chinese classic. And so it's it was his compound in Tsukiji where Inoue Kaoru was renting it from him for a while. And so they talk about how uh, Ito Hirobumi and Inoue Kaoru would get mm. together and Okuma would be there. And you can imagine you know, these, three, the, these three great reformers, right, that we yeah. talk about plotting all of these modernist reforms for Meiji Japan, mm. and they're doing it in a place that has this reference to this great Chinese classic. Plus, what are they writing their notes in? They're not writing it in in a recognizable form of Japanese, they're writing essentially kanbuntai, right. Japanese with a heavy admixture of kanji mm -hmm. and essentially kanbuntai uh, Japanese grammatical elements. Mm -hmm. So you know, this just doesn't look the modernity that you and I learn about when we were <laughs> undergraduates. So you mentioned the, the survey. What year was that? That was in 1890. 1890. And so, I mean, this was 1890. There's already been somewhat of a conservative resurgence, perhaps, yeah. maybe a return to Confucian education. Uh, uh -huh. Is it possible that this idea of, this is what the learned Meiji man is supposed to be reading, the Confucian text or the traditional text? Yeah, that could be so, but I mean, you have to look at the reprinting history as well. Um, right. And there are a whole lot of other measures that uh, I managed to sift through. Mm -hmm. um, it looks pretty stable to me. And uh, when you looking with a long durée of, over the Meiji period, it's really some time before these very unfamiliar forms of literature that are Western novels that are translated into Japanese begin to attract a lot of people for their, their literary qualities. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, in, as you know, in the first half of the Meiji period, a lot of the translations, they may be of literary works, like the novels of Disraeli, for example. They're actually very interesting novels, but they're not being translated as literature, they're being more translated for their political nuances. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can recognize that a translation has been done here, but when you compare it with the original, all the more descriptive passages are being cut out because that's not what we're going to focus on. We want to focus on the political bits. Um, there's a, a clear motive that's skewing the nature of, of, of the translation you have here. So, I mean, in general, the major restoration has been something that I've tended to to ignore uh, an awful lot. Uh, but more recently, uh, while I haven't changed my stance very much, what I have begun to notice um, is some areas where there are, there are discontinuities, things that, that happened for the first time in the Meiji period. One very obvious example that's closely connected with Meiji is the revival of the household laws, the Koshitsu Tempan, which was enshrined in law in 1890, if I'm not mistaken, in which for the first time women are excluded from the throne. You know, that was a move which went against 
tradition and marks a departure from practice up until the uh, late 18th century. So there you can see something has, has quite, quite definitely changed. And another respect which has attracted my attention quite recently is the consequences for Emperor Meiji himself of the changes that are taking place. As we all know, in 1868, the so-called Charter Oath was issued, which called on Japanese people to seek knowledge throughout the world. Now, we usually assume that means the kind of people who went on the Iwakura mission, for example, and the, the other f people who went out as students. But there are two examples of members of the uh, imperial family who followed that injunction very, very quickly. Um, one of them was uh, Prince Kacho, Kacho no Miya, who set off for the United States with the aim of becoming uh, a military officer and went to Brooklyn College for a year first to polish up his English and then went on to the uh, US Naval Academy at Annapolis, uh, where he pursued his studies for a couple of years. Unfortunately, he fell ill, uh, went home in 1873, and then died in 1876. But the other one, uh, Prince uh, Higashifumi, who was also uh, essentially a cousin of Emperor Meiji, uh, went to England and spent two years uh, studying and uh, partying by all accounts. And it did his career a lot of good, as it did most Japanese who went abroad for time. He ended up as a uh, a field marshal uh, in the army. So you've got two examples of members of the imperial household themselves, uh, quite closely related to Meiji, who are actually going overseas. It was a long time before a reigning emperor himself went abroad, but of course Hirohito, the future Showa Tenno, did uh, make a trip um, when he was still okay. crown prince. But the converse was true as well, and that in a sense created more problems because in 1869, April, Harry Parks, who was a British minister in Tokyo, told the government and told the imperial household um, that a son of Queen Victoria was coming to Japan. Um, so they'd better make some proper arrangements to greet him. This, as you can imagine, caused some consternation, but it was decided to accord him the honour of a, an official state visit, which of course was the first time any such event had happened in Japan. This is still 1869, one year after the so-called restoration. And uh, they were looking around for some place to put this uh, young prince up. Um, it was Prince Alfred, who was the second son of, of Queen Victoria. He was a naval captain, and he was command of his own frigate, the Galatea, which was going to be putting into Japan. So they decided to take hold of um, a bit of land which was uh, surrounded by water, but which is now, you can probably imagine it yourself, the garden you look down on when you're setting off from Hamadzhu on your way to Haneda Airport on the monorail. Mm. That place, the Hamadikyu uh, Garden, as it's now called, was a Tokugawa palace that had been taken over by Katsukaishu. At the very end, of the Tokugawa appeared to be the headquarters of the uh, short-lived Bakufu Navy. And that structure, then the Meiji government took over added uh, a lot of frills, such as some nice fusuma, uh, some nice paintings, and made that into the first facility to receive foreign visitors, the Enyokan, as it was called. And that was the place where Prince Alfred uh, put up. He was the Duke of Edinburgh, um, second son of Queen Victoria, so really quite a senior member of the British royal family. And a, a lot 
had to go into how to deal with this first encounter with, with other royalty in the terms of not only the luxuriousness of the facilities, the arrangements for a, a face-to-face audience with Emperor Meiji, uh, but also protection. I mean, these were still dangerous days, of course, in, in Tokyo. And so whenever he went out, he had, as the account describes it, 32 yakunin, two sordid men uh, with him to, to make sure that uh, nothing un- untoward happened. And the, the account of the uh, audience with Meiji is also interesting because it specifies that Meiji stood up and um, the, the two of them greeted each other as equals. And the other thing that was a first for Meiji, a first actually for... I imagine any Japanese reigning emperor was that the interpreting was not done by a Japanese, but by Bertie Mitford, who was attached to the British legation, in, uh, which was still in Yokohama at the time. And uh, so for the first time, Meiji heard English being interpreted into Japanese by, by the young Mitford. Um, and then there followed the normal kind of, of receptions that, that follows. So you know, this was the first of a lot of direct connections between the Japanese imperial family, which had hitherto had none with any other ruling family elsewhere, with, in this particular case, the British royal family. Uh, restoration uh, a moment ago and one of the things that occurred to me when I was uh, thinking about how I was going to answer your question system was um, you know how unsatisfactory this word is <laughs> and sure. uh, it's of course come out as a translation of fukko which was a word that was very commonly used in the early Meiji period but that didn't get stuck mm-hmm. as the name of these events but the English translation of it has got stuck mm-hmm. I ran through all the um, the various language Wikipedia entries for major restoration uh, to see what it's called in other languages. Of course, in, in Chinese and Korean, it's still called Meiji Yishin with variations of pronunciation. But essentially, the, the, the four kanji are used as the name for it. So that's not a problem. Um, in most European countries, essentially, there's a translation of restoration with a few exceptions. In Italian, it's usually called uh, a renewal which is a bit more accurate in terms of a translation of Ishin. And there may be a few other languages that I didn't manage to define. But somehow the English restoration has, has become set. And I've always thought, I really want to get rid of this term. Sure. Um, because one of the first questions that students inevitably asked me was, what actually was being restored? And you said, just hang on, we're not talking about restoration here. But I think we're stuck with that, don't you? Why is it? I think uh, restoration was one of the ways in which what happened uh, was perceived by Western observers on, on the site in the, in the late 19th century. One of the ways of, of interpreting it um, was to see the tycoon being dethroned, as they would have seen it, and, and the emperor restored to power. It mm-hmm. might make a certain sense. Of course, mm-hmm. with our advantage of a lot of hindsight, 150 years of hindsight now, it doesn't really look like mm-hmm. that way. Um, there's actually a lot of continuity, but um, it didn't necessarily look that way to um, to writers uh, who had travelled from North America or Canada or or Europe and resided in uh, in Meiji Japan. And of course, that that's not really how Japanese thinkers saw it either. Even Foucault doesn't really 
equate to restoration. Um, so it looks more like a kind of analogy with um, British history, perhaps, and maybe uh, the restoration of the monarchy in France, um, as if uh, an analogy that's familiar is being applied to the very unfamiliar events of of Meiji Japan. I wonder if there's something about European ideas of modernity uh-huh. and this kind of epistemology of modernity as something that is bringing back the past. Hmm. Is this a particularly European idea of modernity and revolution that is hmm. now being imposed on the Meiji Restoration or, or this moment of whatever we want to call it in hmm. 1868? I think for European observers, um, the emperor system the very existence there, but it was largely invisible. What they saw as the manifestation of power all came from uh, the shogun, whom they call the, the tycoon. So you can see how they might conceive uh, empress of have, as having been essentially pushed into the background and then restored to their proper position. But as as we all know, um, that's not exactly what, what, what happened. There, there is something to be said about a gesture towards bringing back some of the old court forms, right? And, there are, yeah. and bringing back the old court dress, resuscitating the Dajokan system that right. really hadn't been in use since the Heian period. Right. One of the, the more fun things I, I noticed uh, one time reading through early Meiji court documents, all of these guys, Ito Hirobumi, yeah. Okuma Shigenobu, they all adopt names like Fujiwara something or, yeah, or yeah. Taira something or yeah, other. Uh-huh. And it, it's it's fun to kind of think of them play-acting royalty. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. So there is at least some kind of gesturing. But when it came to dress, however, it was different. They, mm-hmm. they didn't adopt Heian court, court dress. That's I mean, true. they were very particular with their dress. And most Japanese, when they traveled abroad in the 1850s and 1860s, suddenly became aware of the fact that they were wearing Japanese dress. It was just clothes you wear. But when they found themselves being not necessarily laughed at, but certainly stared at on the streets of London or Marseille or, or New York, because they were walking around with their chonmage and their two swords <laughs> on their sides, I'm surprised they were allowed to carry the swords. Yeah. But uh, they were carrying swords. Um, and then they began to realize that they stood out. They, they, and they immediately, in the case of the students who were in England uh, went to tailors and had themselves kitted out in what they saw would make them more invisible. Um, And that becomes the pattern for all the Meiji leaders. Um, They dress themselves up, first of all in in Western civilian clothes, and then increasingly, of course, you get more and more gaudy military uniforms, and the Meiji emperor himself becomes recreated as essentially a military leader, at least in terms of dress, not necessarily in terms of actual command. There's a great anecdote from the San Francisco newspapers when the Iwakura mission arrives in San Francisco, and they're describing this Japanese man who has a larger-than-average-sized head. And if they're talking about Iwakura Tomomi. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's this famous photograph of all of the Iwakura mission ambassadors. Uh. Kido Takayoshi's wearing a suit, yeah. Ito Hirobumi's wearing a suit, and Iwakura Tomomi is still in his, in his the, court dress. Yes. But, as the newspaper tells us, he went and got his head sized to get a Western-style bowler hat. <laughs> and as the, as the writer says, even this movie is indicative of Japanese progress. <laughs>
if restoration is, is an unsatisfactory term, yes. as, as we've been talking about, yeah. which what what would you suggest as an alternative? I would go for renovation. Renovation. Yeah. Not revolution. Revolution is what, um, of course, Thomas Huber um, went for that term. Um, you find that you found it a lot in um, Soviet writings on Japanese history. They, that's what they prefer to call it, the major revolution. Um, and occasionally you find uh, Meiji Kakume in Japanese writings, but um, it's probably going a bit too far to call it a revolution. And that's not really what Ishin means. I mean, if we're going to use a term, then perhaps it ought to be close to the word that is the current term in Japan. I mean, in a sense, Meiji Shin is, has the same sort of problems as words like Tenno. And uh, if you're talking among people who know Japanese, it's so much easier just to refer to Tenno or Meiji Shin okay. than to start resorting to unsatisfactory translations. Mm -hmm. Is that to say then that Meiji was not revolutionary? Do you mean um, Meiji himself? Or the Meiji period? I would... Uh, argue that it was not revolutionary um, because not a great deal uh, changed in the, a dramatic sort of way. Um, you can't really point to dramatic events like the kind that are associated with the revolution in Iran, let alone those in, in Russia or in, uh, in France, for example. Um, so that element is missing. In, in fact, in many ways, um, seen as a revolution, 1868 is a bit of an anticlimax. Okay, you've got a bit of fighting at Toba Fushimi, but it's a couple of men and a dog who are injured. I mean, there's not a lot going on there. Yeah. So in that case, you mentioned some continuities, but some discontinuities as well. So if, if we're trying to identify a Meiji transition, uh -huh. When is that transition? Okay, well, that's the interesting question. I mean, I, I, this is a question I often used to set my my students um, without giving them a, a very clear-cut <laughs> answer. Um, but when you look at uh, Beasley's uh, book, which is called The Major Restoration, you know, it's a, it's a massive tome, but it's not actually about the Major <laughs> Restoration. It's about a, a long span of time that covers some 20, 25 years. Mm -hmm. And that's what most people who write about the Major Restoration end up doing. Whereas if you write a book about the Russian Revolution, you're going to spend a lot of time on 1917, and maybe not a lot more on, on the years either side, a little bit perhaps. Ditto with, with the French Revolution. Um, but the Major Restoration, if, if looked at as a, uh, a, an event, um, nothing much happens in 1868 that you can really point to. It's, it happens over the next couple of years and to some extent over the previous years. If you think of Japanese starting to go abroad, well, that's happening in the 1850s. Um, and that's in a sense when the, the beginnings of um, direct first-hand knowledge uh, acquired through several years of tough living um, in unfamiliar environments, that's when that starts to be, become acquired. And those who have that knowledge, that experience, uh, then find that they can lever it into positions of uh, at least considerable uh, influence, if not eminence, uh, when, when they get back, particularly in, in the major periods. So, you know, that's happening before. And then um, it's, it takes some time um, to get the administrative rearrangements right in the Meiji period. As, as you know, as anybody who's worked with early Meiji sources finds, you come across the names of prefectures that you've never heard of that lasted for a couple of months and before it was then reabsorbed. Um, so the, the administrative chaos of the first couple of years must have been a nightmare to live through. Um, I think 
I've often thought, um, though I'm not going to put this in practice, this is not a commitment, that it'd be very interesting to to pick one of those early years, say 69 or, or, or 70, and, and just explore all the things that happened in that one year, rather like that uh, rather interesting book about Ming China, picking on a year of no right, no significance. Of those, um, yeah. You could pick on 1870 as a year of, of no significance and see you know, what actually is happening in terms of um, at the administrative level, uh, the changes which are a pretty constant and, and evolving um, throughout the year that must have been uh, very disconcerting and uh, unnerving for uh, those who were trying to administer them, trying to get used to the new system and finding that the rules were being changed under their feet uh, as they moved along. And at the bottom level, seeing how these were changes were impacting on on ordinary people whose livelihoods are being taken away by uh, by steam trains, by rickshaws, by uh, spinning machines, um, post office, and all the rest of it. So for literature, would you say that you mentioned that at, at some point you get more kind of Western-style literature that comes in. When it, is this when that transition would happen from a literary standpoint? The transition from a literary standpoint is much more more gradual. Um, you get writers who uh, are certainly reading um, some Western literature, um, and in the early Meiji period, it has to be in the original. So you wonder exactly what 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 they're getting out of it. But what they do seem to be uh, deriving is uh, certain elements which are are new in terms of um, the kinds of plot they're writing. Um, and the kind of, of setting. Um, so they're much more urban novels um, set in uh, a recognisable present. They're the here and now, uh, and it's signalled by the nature of the buildings, the nature of the streets, the place names, and so on. They can be located in the Meiji period much more, more clearly. And that wasn't really so of um, Ozaki Koyo and his uh, fellow writers in the early stages. Um, they were essentially writing uh, Tokugawa period fiction, but somehow it didn't seem very quite right to them, and, um, and yet that's what the customers wanted. That's what they were still managing to to find uh, as the, a writer's trade that would bring in some money. Um, but it takes time for the new to become become familiarised, um, and it takes time for readers too to become acquainted with um, new modes of description, new representation. Of, of dialogue, for example, because in in Edo period fiction, uh, a lot of the dialogue was uh, very realistically represented in the sense that, uh, rather like uh, dialogue in playbooks for the theatre, it represented uh, as close as you could get speech without conventionalising it. Um, and even in some cases, um, including things like coughs or speech defects and so on. So the attention to the oral experience of speech is really quite close to the theatre in a lot of Edo period fiction. But it becomes increasingly conventionalised in the in the course of the Meiji period. Um, and you begin to use that, that theatrical particularity. Um, certainly by the time you get to Soseki, it, it's, it's largely gone. Um, um, it's one of the features of Edo fiction that's, that's quite remarkable and that gives you a sense of the oral, I mean, the sound quality of, of fiction. Um, and, and that gradually tends to disappear in, in, in the course of the Meiji period. Um, there are other sorts of, of changes as well, but as I tried to show in my thesis, which was 
perhaps a bit unrealistically focusing on the continuities rather than discontinuities, there are a lot of continuities that are going on um, and that last really through until the uh, early 1890s, um, perhaps a little bit later. Um, and by that time, of course, their books are also being transformed by being printed with uh, metal movable type. They're becoming less uh, attractive in terms of the quality of the paper. Um, the handwriting doesn't change because of standardized type and so on and so forth. So the, the, the medium is changing quite rapidly as well as, well as the message. It's, I think, in 1890 that the last literary works are printed with movable type with woodblock illustrations. Um, but that's the last gasp of, of the literary tradition in woodblock printing. talking about the high end of Meiji society, haven't we? We've been talking about the emperor, we've been talking about um, the emperor's cousins, and we've been talking about uh, royal visitors, we've been talking about Ito Hirobumi, Okuma Shigenobu, and all that lot. Um, one of the things that um, struck me, but I've never done anything with it, uh, when I was uh, roaming through early Meiji newspapers, working on my PhD dissertation many, many moons ago, um, was how much reporting of events like uh, suicides, poverty, hardship there was. And uh, I began to see a fairly dark side of early Meiji Japan. Um, that really has to some extent been airbrushed out of a, a lot of the history. We tend to focus on the the big name figures that you and I have been, been talking about, the ones who could uh, see several ways forward and were uh, thinking about the future, not those who are being being left behind by the march of history. You see some of those people in, in Higuchi Ichio's novels, people who are struggling to survive, whose livelihoods have been taken away, who um, uh, who don't really know where to turn. You see it also in those nice uh, prints which show battles between the new and the old, right. battle between uh, the old oil lamp and the, uh, right. the new the, gas lamp, battle between right. uh, the norimono haulers and then somebody in a rickshaw and all the rest right. of it. The, the Keika Injun yeah. uh, print, right? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yes, mm -hmm. yes. So there's, um, there were clearly a lot of people whose livelihoods are being taken away from them. Um, and that's something uh, we tend to forget, but you can see the um, impact it made in, in the newspaper reports. These are just uh, page three type of uh, local incidents, small incidents, but as I went through page after page after page on the gusty microphone readers in the National Diet Library, I couldn't help but noticing how many of these events there were and how, how much of the early newspapers were full of these rather tragic events. And I think this is where the Jiuminkan Undo grows from in the mm -hmm. 1880s. I mean, yes, there is something about the early 1880s and the educational system and the high rates of literacy and, and, and the spread of newspapers allowing these ideas to float mm. around. But there's a fundamental consternation yeah. in the countryside that fuels these people's reactions to the state. And yeah. It's just kind of coming to the forefront 
every once in a while in a new form, but it's it's still. And some of it is taking advantage of the new media. I right. mean, yeah. you get um, conservative Buddhist organizations that mm-hmm. see um, the success of Christian magazines and Christian newspapers, and therefore launch uh, their own. Uh, magazines, um, which is something, of course, they hadn't uh, ever considered doing before. And you find uh, populist people like Sata Kaiseki, who um, uh, b- become um, incredibly successful. He's a kind of, uh, about to say, Billy Graham type figure. Uh, maybe that's not uh, a false analogy. I mean, he's an, clearly a very effective speaker uh, in public. Um, he attracts very large numbers of people. He's a Buddhist priest, but he's he's preaching a a message which is of resistance. He sees a lot of the changes as being fundamentally damaging to Japan's essence, as as he sees it. Um, he def- he's defending people whose livelihoods uh, are being lost, and he becomes particularly well known for what uh, he called, or what was called by his detractors, the Rampu Bokokuron, the idea that the introduction of Western lamps is going to destroy Japan, um, and the reports of his his public speaking uh, are of mass events. You know, tens of thousands of people are, are following him. He launches a newspaper. I mean, he, again, he uses new media uh, to get to get his message across. I mean, he wouldn't have had to do that before, but now there are um, people who are trying to peddle new ideas using the new media. So people who want to peddle also the old ideas resort to the same same means, and he's very successful for a couple of years. It sounds a lot like Kita Iki I was just lecturing about yesterday. Yeah. I mean, the same idea of restoring society for the people who have been left behind by the government. Yeah. Is, is and that's not a coincidence because um, I, for a while, was looking into uh, Satakai Seki and his writings, and most of them were issued in, in the early Meiji period, um, and then he disappeared. When was it that there was a resurgence of interest in Satakai Seki's ideas? Precisely the time when Kitaiki was active. There were quite a lot of articles, some reprints of some of his writings. They clearly touched a nerve again much later in, in the 30s. Mm-hmm. So that's really quite quite interesting. But back in the Meiji period, um, it's again interesting that there are these sort of grassroots movements uh, which are resisting uh, what we now see as the inevitable march of, of events in the early Meiji period. Um, and that they're, in some respects, very successful at getting a message across. Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.